What is up, everybody? Thank you for checking out a new episode of the Baba Core Core podcast. I am your host, Patrick C. Huerta. Uh, hopefully, you're having a good day. Uh, this this is Sunday. Well, actually, I'm recording the intro on Saturday, uh, but this episode will be out on Sunday. So, hopefully, you had a good weekend. Uh, you enjoyed your fiesta, if that's what you did. Uh, hopefully, the Spurs won last night. Um, as I said, I'm recording this on Saturday, so the game's later on tonight at 9. But when you're listening to this, hopefully uh, the Spurs have won and moved on. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. And hopefully y'all having fun. Uh, Fiesta's been going on this week. It's Fiesta's over. So, uh, yeah, that's cool. Uh, but, yes. So uh, let me start off with the shout-outs, as I always do. Uh, shout out to CBDB. You can follow them on Instagram at mycbdb or check out their website, mycbdb.com. Use promo code TXMC to get 15% off of your purchase through the website. Or again, just keep up with them. Uh, keep track of them. You can check them out on Instagram at mycbdb. CBDB, they're the Texas Hemp Botanical Alternative Boutique and Pop-Up Shop for all your CBD needs uh, throughout Texas. Uh, but I'm pretty sure if you go through the website, you could, uh, they ship, um, you know, anywhere, wherever you are. Uh, that's not a guarantee. I don't know if that's true, but I'm pretty sure that's how it should work or might work. Uh, so if you go to mycbdb.com, uh, use promo code TXMC to get 15% off your purchase through the website. Also want to give another shout out to Ugly Head. Ugly Head has a new EP that is out already. The Disembodied EP. It is out. It is available. Uh, you could uh, do a digital download on their Bandcamp page um, or you can stream it. Uh, you know, it's on iTunes. It's on uh, Spotify, uh, Pandora probably. Uh, but yeah, check it out. It's a great sounding EP. Uh, I dig it. Uh, Jake's a very prolific uh, musician. He's always coming out with new new music or new projects. I mean, he put out a live album uh, not too long ago, which sounds amazing. Um, and then he had The Garden come out a few years back. I think this is his 30p since The Garden. I'm not 100% sure. But check him out on the Bandcamp. Uh, or go to the website uh, www.uglyheadmusic.org um, and support Uglyhead because they allow us to use the music for the intros and outros of this and every episode and uh, good friends with them. Um, so yeah, also shout out to 104 Menudo y Mas. Uh, follow them on Instagram or on their Facebook page 104 Menudo y Mas. Uh, they're a pop-up shop. They do uh, Menudo. That's their that's the thing they're known for. But they also try other things. They do like uh, pulled pork sandwiches, uh, shredded chicken sandwiches, uh, pozole. Uh, they try different things here and there. And sometimes they just do just do random pop-ups. I know they have a setup coming up uh, in May, the beginning of May. Uh, they'll be set up and they'll be selling their stuff. Uh, but follow them on Instagram so you know what's what's going on. Follow their Facebook page, uh, 10.4 Menudo y Mas. And yeah. Also, uh, what, what, what was I going to say? Oh, so to find out where all these episodes are, I mean, obviously you, you know where they are because you're listening to it right now, and thank you very much for doing that. Uh, but you could also go to www.babacoacore.com. That will get you all the links uh, for everything Babacoacore Core. 
uh, whether it's the SoundCloud, SoundCloud page, the iTunes page, the YouTube page, CastBox, Google Play. I also have my Instagram uh, page linked up to that. Uh, the Bible Core Core Podcast Instagram page linked up to that. Uh, my Facebook page, Bible Core Core Podcast. Anything Bible Core Core related, go to BibleCoreCore.com and you'll be able to get all the information on that. Uh, like, share, subscribe. Um, if you dig what we do, uh, click like on whichever platform you listen to. Uh, oh, shit, that rhymed. Um, yeah, like, share, subscribe. That will really help the podcast. I'm really trying to grow this thing uh, to, to um, as big as I can, you know. So uh, with your help, that will be possible. So before you, or even before you, you do anything, whether you subscribe, share, like, uh, I thank you for doing that. I appreciate your help on helping me grow this podcast uh, to a broader audience. I thank you for that. Uh, so, yeah, www.babacorecore.com uh, for all all things Babacore Core. Uh, so, yeah, so let's get into this episode. This episode, it's, it's, it's a bit different. Uh, well, I say that for every episode, but... Uh, this is a, a very serious topic. My guest, um, he is in the middle, in the process of finishing writing his book. He has a book that will be coming out. Um, I refer to him as Mr. J, uh, just for anonymity. I think I'm saying that right. I think I'm using that right. Uh, but yeah, going by Mr. J, he's in the process of finishing this book. His book is about uh, drug addictions, um, the debauchery that comes along with that. And then recovery, being in and out of recovery, uh, the things that go along with that, and and then sobriety, staying sober, uh, working the program, doing everything that he, he he's doing, and why he does it, uh, how he got there, how he stays there, will all be covered in his book. On this episode, we pretty much just scratched the surface of what he has going on uh, in the book. Um, and again, the, the book is still being written right now. Um, you know, he's having some help with that and all that stuff, but it's, it's, it's from what he shared just on the podcast and even, um, off, um, off mic. Um, it's, it sounds like it's going to be a very interesting story, uh, that maybe a lot of people could, could benefit from, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, addiction to, you know, we all got our, our addictions, you know, uh, so maybe it could help you with that. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, so it was very interesting to have him on. Uh, we, we were introduced through a mutual friend. So I like when that happens. Um, you know, people talk about the podcast and they, uh, they share their experience on the, about on the podcast. And, uh, he, he was very interested in coming on. He, he contacted me through email and we, we set it up and I'm glad we did. Cause he's a very interesting guy with a very interesting backstory, you know, um, uh, it is it is pretty pretty sad, pretty intense, uh, you know, because of, of all the stuff that he's been through uh, because of his addiction, because of his drug use. Uh, and but he he made it out. He survived that. He made it out, um, and he's he's uh, with, with recovery and with following the programs. You know, he's he's remained uh, you know sober, um, which is which is great. Um, you know, because it could have gone a different way. It could have ended, ended uh, pretty bad. Uh, but, yeah. 
So he came on. We talked about the book. We talked about um, a little bit about what's in the book. Um, it was an intense, uh, intense conversation. Uh, a lot of stuff uh, that we covered, uh, and you'll hear that. Uh, but yeah, uh, but I, I uh, address him as a reference, uh, refer to him as Mr. J. Uh, but you can follow him on Instagram at sa fit uh, sa underscore fit underscore concierge. Um, so you can find him, so you can keep track of him and and the, the progress of the book and the release of the book. Um, so yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a great episode. I'm glad he came in. I'm glad he, he, uh, shared uh, his story on the podcast. Um, so yeah, it was a great episode. Hopefully you enjoy it. Like, share, subscribe, uh, listen. Um, and, uh, thank you very much and I'll see y'all next week. Mr. J, how you doing? Good. How's it going? Thank Good. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. No, uh, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I was introduced to you, or yeah, we were introduced through a mutual friend, and he told me a little bit about your story and uh, how you wanted to come on the podcast and talk about what you got going on. Uh, and I was I read a little bit about uh, your book that you have that you're in the process of working, and I was very interested to have you come on the podcast. Uh, so just to introduce uh, yourself to the listeners, uh, who are you and, and what, what is it that you do? Uh, my name is Jason uh, W., and I'm, I will not use my last name just simply based on uh, reasons that we'll get into later, but <clears throat> I am a full-time personal trainer. I am originally from uh, Massachusetts, the Boston area. I moved down here in uh, 2009, and decided uh, I had lost my job up in Massachusetts and I decided that uh, I needed to get out of Massachusetts. It was in the middle of the winter, very depressing, and I lived by myself. And um, it was in the middle of February with about 10 inches of snow on the ground. And uh, my father lives here in Texas and my mother lives here uh, in San Antonio. So I decided that I was going to make a move, and I literally, within two hours, I made a giant cardboard sign that said free stuff. I put it on the curb. I grabbed my gym bag. I went to the gym, worked out, and then uh, while I was at the gym working out, a a nor'easter snowstorm uh, blew in, and we got about 23 inches of snow. And when I drove home from the gym, uh, as I was pulling in the driveway, everything was gone that I had put on the curb. I had a couch, I had a dresser, everything I could physically carry on my own, I put out there. And I decided that I wanted to make a fresh start and uh, every, anything and everything I could fit in a two-door Honda Accord, I loaded in it and uh, wrote my landlord a last check. And uh, that was that. Left Massachusetts after living there for 14 years. Never looked back. And I've been here since 2009. Yeah. So your family's originally from Texas? They are. Yeah. My dad uh, grew up in McKinney, Texas, and my mother uh, has lived in San Antonio for 30, 34 years. Okay. So how'd you wind up in Massachusetts? 
I ended up Massachusetts after uh, getting out of the military in 94. I was in station in Okinawa, Japan, and uh, married at 19, divorced at 21, and uh, was in Oklahoma at the time when I got a divorce, and I couldn't stand Oklahoma, and I, I couldn't stand my you know, living with my in-laws at the time and my wife at the time and I were fighting and I knew we were getting a divorce. Never should have gotten married in the first place because I was too young. Yeah, that's really young. Yeah, very. And I thought I knew it all and, you know, thought I was doing the right thing. And uh, we also had a child together. Mm. She got pregnant when we were in high school and her father uh, threatened me and he was a very large man said that uh, I could do one of two things, either be a man and step up to the plate and marry his daughter, or I could walk out of his front door and he never wanted to see my face in the state of Oklahoma again. Wow. So I married his daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, and so <clears throat> I had family up in Massachusetts. My grandparents at the time lived in Massachusetts and uh I decided, you know, that's where I was going. I wanted to get out of Oklahoma. And my aunt and uncle, who I'm very close with, they mailed me a plane ticket. I had a ticket waiting for me at the airport in Oklahoma. Uh, I explained to my boss that I had to get out of there. That, you know, I'm sorry, but this isn't working. And I appreciated his, you know, opportunity that he gave me with his company. And, uh, and that was that. Within 48 hours, I was sitting in the living room of my aunt's house in Weston, Massachusetts. Okay. So, uh, as I mentioned, like you have, you have this book. What is this book? What's, what's, what's the story behind the book? Uh, <clears throat> the book is a collection of short stories uh, of all my time and uh, debauchery and, and the links that I went to to get high while I was using uh, hardcore street drugs and drinking. And after spending uh, time in two different rehabs and detoxes, um, I decided, you know, that, and this is my own experience, but going through all that and going through the detoxes and rehab centers, um, they took a very... um, academic approach to teaching you about the effects of drugs on, you know, on your body physiology and and what effects it had long-term. And what I noticed was uh, that the recidivism rate for younger people uh, was very high. So that, that led me to do a little more research and, uh, you know, really, um, immerse myself in the, in, into addiction and the, and the disease of addiction and, and look at, you know, why is it that this age bracket seems to not be able to stay sober and put a, put a long length of sobriety together. There has to be a common thread. And, um, and what, what was that age bracket? Like, when did you start? When was it? Well, so I took my, I took my first drink when I was, 13 at a Christmas party that my dad was having. My dad was an alcoholic, uh, physically abusive, verbally abusive. 
and I was an only child. Um, and my mother, uh, my mother did not want to be a mother. She left my father and, and I when I was three. So my father raised me. Wow. Um, and so I grew up in a, you know, a volatile, violent household. And so I, I never had that maternal, you know, uh, aspect to, to growing up. So I, you know, I only knew, uh, violence and, and, you know, verbal abuse, you know, that you're not good enough. You know, you, you want to play that sport. Well, you can't do that. It's not going to work out. And just, uh, mental and physical, uh, torture for most of my childhood. Mm. And at the time I thought that, you know, to the, to the, to a large degree, I thought that that was normalcy as, as a kid, you know, cause I, I had other friends in the neighborhood, they would get spanked, but I was not getting spanked. I was getting beaten. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, there's a difference. Um, and I'm able to recognize that today, you know, just through therapy and, um, doing some work on myself. Um, but anyway, to circle back to the book. So this book, you know, I, I took my first drink at 13 and then I pretty much was a good boy until age 17. And I was working at Arby's roast beef in Oklahoma city. And I went to the manager's house for a Christmas party. And that's the first time I smoked pot two hits of a joint. I don't even remember getting high at all, at all. I don't think it did anything to me. And so then fast forward, I joined the military at 18, uh, got married at 19, was a father at 19, got shipped to a third world country because in 1992, Okinawa, Japan literally was a third world country. Mm. They did not have running toilets. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, open sewage and it was, not the place that you really wanted to end up. Mm -hmm. And then to, to, to make things even better, I had a woman who had never been out of the state of Oklahoma as my wife. I took her and my daughter from Oklahoma overnight to Okinawa, Japan. Mm -hmm. And I was a military policeman, a canine handler, and I was working 6 PM to 6 AM shifts. So when I was at work, they were in they, you know, they were sleeping mm -hmm. and, she was extremely homesick and she was calling her mother and dad at least two or three times a week. My phone bill was outrageous. And so I was coming home in the morning wanting to go to sleep. They were waking up mm. and it was just a constant battle. She hated it there, uh, refused to make friends, refused to get a job. And I, you know, on paper was a married man, but Truthfully, at that time in my life, I, I really didn't want to be married. Mm -hmm. I got married for the wrong reasons. And it was mainly because of the fact that I had a child. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, and so this book, you know, uh, back to when I was, you know, when I first started using my, my using and experimentation uh, took off when I was discharged from the military. And then I moved up to Boston. And in Boston in, 19, in the 90s, mid-90s, the club circuits, the techno music, the whole uh, club scene, bar scene, that was huge. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, Lansdowne Street, which is the street that, that the uh, Fenway Park is on, the mm -hmm. ballpark. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing but bars and clubs and, you know, you name it. Um, 
so anyway, that's, I ended up getting a job at a lumber yard and loading flatbed trailers uh, all day long on a forklift. And I worked with a guy who sold pot. Mm-hmm. And so that's how my uh, introduction to the, the world of hardcore drugs got started. And how old were you when that started? I was uh, 21. Wow, that's still so young. Yeah. Um, and see, you know, I, <clears throat> I started off with, you know, smoking a little pot and, do, you know, drinking. And eventually that kind of got boring. You know, I wanted to go fly to the moon. And so it didn't take long. Within a matter of months, I was introduced to cocaine, powder cocaine. Mm. And I actually snorted my first line of cocaine off of the boss's desk. And uh, that was in Stoughton, Massachusetts at the time. And I could tell immediately, you know, it took three or four or five minutes. I forget how long it took to set in. But I knew instantly when I felt that feeling of euphoria that I was in trouble. And for the next six, seven years, I just went off the deep end. I got introduced to crack cocaine, which I always swore up and down, you know, I'll never do that. And that's where I ended up. Uh, Got introduced to methamphetamine, got introduced to uh, benzodiazepines, pain pills. Then in 1999, I got in a horrible car accident. I fell asleep on the highway and uh, hit a uh, part of a construction site where there was a mound of dirt off the side of the road. Mm. And I had fallen asleep because at the time I was working at Home Depot and I had been up for about two and a half days. We were doing inventory and then I went home. And when I went home, the sun was coming up, so I couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. And I got invited down to a buddy's house to you know hang out. And I was off for the next three days. And so I went down there, hung out a little while and had a couple of beers, literally a couple of beers, and smoked a little weed. And uh, about seven hours later, I'm in my truck and I'm driving back. And I guess at that point, you know, the exhaustion was too much. And with the alcohol and the weed. Yeah, but well, I I say that, you know, this the the two beers and the weed was very early on when my when during the visit. Mm -hmm. So and they ran a toxicology report at the hospital, and I. They, they didn't find anything, which I was shocked. Mm. Um, and so they just chalked it up to fatigue mm-hmm. and I ended up, so I ended up breaking my back. I ended up fracturing my spine and, uh, causing a, a partial tear in my spleen from the impact. And so for the next 10 days, I was in a hospital getting, getting, uh, intermuscular injections of Demerol mm-hmm. every two hours round the clock. Demerol and uh, 10 milligrams of Percocet, two milligrams of Ativan and some Colace because I couldn't, couldn't shit. Like all my intestines were so jacked up from the narcotics and this went on for eight days. And at this time, I mean, when you got into the hospital, there was no signs of, of addiction. Like you, they couldn't tell that you were addicted to anything or no. you weren't really that, that deep into it. When that accident happened? No, not at all. Uh, up until that point, it was pretty much weekend partying. Oh, okay. Um, it had never turned into a daily thing, a daily need. Of, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I wasn't chasing it. It just, if things were around at that point, that's mm-hmm. what I 
that's what I did. Um, but it was purely experimentation up to that point. Mm -hmm. And then, um, when I got discharged from the hospital, I went through withdrawals, right? Cause I was getting pumped full of Demerol and Demerol's some serious stuff, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and so anyway, I get out of the hospital, I'm wearing this plastic turtle shell from under my neck down to my waist and I'm miserable. And my buddy who I worked with at Home Depot was from Florida. So he talks me into moving to Sarasota, Florida. Mm. Now I had just broken up with a girl. I got in a car accident. I'd broken my back. I was going to physical therapy and I, I was finally given the green light and okay to move. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, you could, you could transfer with Home Depot store to store and work out, you know, your money situation and this and that. Yeah. Well, that's where I ended up in Florida. And then that, as soon as I got to Florida, that's where my real hardcore drug using started. Mm -hmm. And it was, they called it the devil's playground where I was. Yeah. And this was before all the uh, narcotic prescription uh, uh, warnings and, and, you know, um, red flag uh thing that they have now at all the pharmacies that wasn't in place back then yeah this was like the late 90s yeah yeah so pill mills and you know all these crooked doctors and the first doctor i went to uh did an examination on me that literally lasted two minutes and i i see him pull out his prescription pad and he starts writing stuff and he filled out three prescriptions and i had no idea what he was writing he didn't even send me for an x-ray mm -hmm. i mean the guy was there were, I went, I walked in a closet that he called his office. There were no windows, no fax machine, no nothing. It was a, literally like this, like an empty room, half this size. Mm -hmm. And, um, anyway, I still remember him. He, he looked like Lurch, uh, huge six foot five guy with saggy eyes and had a big pin on his lapel that said, had, had the word pain with a big red X through it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so he just wrote you a bunch of pain pills. Yeah. Very first time seeing the guy. I didn't know him from Adam. He didn't know me. He's never met me in my life. And the very first time I see him, I walk out of his office 20 minutes later with a prescription for 45 milligram Percocet and a 60, 10 milligram Valium mm -hmm. and 60, uh, Carissa Prodol or which is Soma, uh, 350 milligram. And, um, which has since over the past five to six years has been uh, carefully monitored because they realize now that it has such a high, high addictive quality to it. It's a muscle relaxant. Mm -hmm. So I was getting the muscle relaxant, I was getting Valium and I was getting Percocet. And he told me when I left, I want to see you one week later from now. And I said, okay, you know, a checkup, a follow-up appointment. Mm -hmm. Well, I realized I, immediately when I left the office, I went across the street to Walgreens. I had all those prescriptions filled. I get in my car. I'm in the parking lot of Walgreens. I pop the cap on the, the oxycodone, which is uh, the Percocet, and I took one five-milligram tablet and put the lid back on so I'd never had Percocet in my life. And so I get in the car. I start driving back home, and I remember I had about a 20-minute ride, and I remember pulling up to this red light and this wave of euphoria, just like, damn, this feels good, man. It's, 
felt too good. Mm. And I knew, I knew I was in trouble at that point. And, uh, so I go now during this time, I'm popping two or three, four, five a day. You know, it says take one to two every four to six hours. I was doing three to four every five or eight hours. And are you doing anything else besides these pills? Or are oh, you yeah. drinking and so, partying and doing all that? So my neighbor in this apartment complex, this guy that lived directly across from me, his wife was a trauma nurse, crooked as a hound's tooth. And they would knock on my door every, you know, once a day and just, I would hold my hand out literally and they would dump all kinds of shit in my hand. I mean, she would, she was stealing pills from the hospital mm. and I in turn was trading some of my pills for, cause he had Lortab at the time, which is hydrocodone, hydrochloride, but it was a 10 milligram tablet. So I was giving him this for that. And then I was buying powder cocaine on the side. And then I got introduced to ecstasy from a guy who worked in the paint department at home Depot. And that completely changed uh, how things were with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, now I'm, I got people knocking on my door because I'm selling pills that I'm getting. I'm buying Coke and ecstasy on the street. Um, and those pills aren't hard to come by because you go back to see the doctor and he gives you another prescription. Yeah. And so that, that, that week later when I had to go back to the doctor to get a follow-up appointment, he... Uh, Without even skipping a beat, I lie to him. I tell him right straight up, um, you know, I'm having to take two of these at a time to to kill the pain that I'm having in my back. I was full of shit. I was lying. Mm. And without even missing a beat, he pulls his script pad out and he bumps the dosage up to 7.5 milligram. And he gives me 120 mm-hmm. for 30 days. So... You know when you get a prescription at the pharmacy and it comes in the little orange bottle mm-hmm. with the white cap? This was straight from the manufacturer in a jug, like directly. It, the seal hadn't even been broken on it, and it had a skull and crossbones on the back. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, too, this dosage of oxycodone hydrochloride was only given to, like, burn patients, cancer patients, people with serious long-term pain. Mm-hmm. Well, this guy's giving them out like M&Ms, and I... I went in, you know, I, I'm, I was taking two of them just to feel normal in the morning with mm-hmm. some orange juice because the orange, this acidity would break the pills down quick. Mm-hmm. And I was working full time during all of this. I never missed work. Um, so even with all that going on, even with the pills and the party and stuff, you still managed, like you didn't realize it was a problem because you were still high functioning. Correct. I was drinking, I was smoking weed, I was snorting coke, taking ecstasy on the weekends. I was getting all these pills from my pain management doctor. And then I I remember going on on a party bus to Tampa to a to a place called Ebor City, which is super popular in Tampa. And I went on a party bus with about 15 people and you pay a small fee, get on the bus and all the beer and and at this point in time there was coke and ecstasy and weed and i mean all kinds of stuff so we get back off from partying in ebor city get back on the bus on the way back to get my car i'm snorting coke i'm smoking weed and a guy i'd never met in my life before he asked me for a ride mm-hmm. so i get my car i give him a ride well i realize halfway uh to his wherever he lived that we we're in a really bad part of town Mm. And this is about two o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning. 
and this particular area of town in, in Sarasota County, you did not, this was not a place for a white boy to be in at the time. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> he asked me to make a stop and we pull over and I lock my doors and it's pitch black and he comes back to the car about three minutes later. And I don't, I don't ask any questions. Well, we get to his house and he asks me, you know, would you like to come in and, you know, hang out and, I, you know, have some beers or whatever. I said, yeah, sure. Why not? So I go in there and I see a piece of a car antenna broken off by the, by his chair. Mm -hmm. And he packed a little Brillo at the end of it. And he proceeded to put this rock on the end of it. And I hadn't seen that before. I had heard about it. I knew what it would do. And, but the, there was something in me that wanted to try it. Mm -hmm. And he handed me the piece of broken car antenna and, you know, and I had flashbacks of about 15 years prior to that saying, Oh, I'll, you know, I'll never smoke crack. Mm -hmm. That's a poor man's drug. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, uh, there, I, there I was, I was, and I took my first hit of crack and it was, uh, that was it. Uh, and I knew the instant I blew out the, the smoke, uh, that I had made a big, big mistake. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so that's how the addiction started, you know, gradually. I mean, you always had it in you, like the, the, the drinking, you know, like, like you said, it was just a weekend thing and then the accident happened and then you started getting quick access to these prescription pills, continue to party with that high functioning throughout all this. And then you get introduced to crack. Yeah. And I ended up, um, so I was super, super during all this, I, I kind of put on this facade, right. That I had my shit together and I really didn't, I was dying on the inside. Um, I was extremely depressed. I was lonely. My roommate was a raging alcoholic. Um, and so our apartment was pretty much a party, party den. Yeah. And so I missed my family back in New England. I had no girlfriend at the time. She had broken up with me. I had gotten in a car accident, broke my back, and here I am in Florida. I'm supposed to be having the time of my life. I'm single now, and you know I'm young, and and I was like I said, I was mentally uh, and emotionally just a wreck. Mm -hmm. And the way I coped with that was popping the pills, snorting the coke, you know. But but eventually it it got to a point where I was just I I, I it took control of my life. I could not stop. Mm. And so one night I ended up overdosing on a bunch of Valium and Percocet and some Corona beers. Mm. And my roommate found me. Um, I was blacked out on the floor. But I, and for some reason I grabbed a, a glass of milk and I never drank milk. <laughs> but I had a glass of milk and I, had, I guess when I blacked out I fell and hit the floor and the milk was all over the floor. And uh, next thing I know I'm getting wheeled into the back of a ambulance and you know they're doing the sternal rub on me and trying to wake me up and mm -hmm. and so that's all I remember and the next thing I know the next my next recollection was waking up in this in the hospital with a Johnny on and I got puke all over me and the first thing that I hear is the sound of the the heart machine you know with the beep Mm -hmm. noise for your heart rate. Yeah. 
And as I'm looking at the machine, I, I see two figures at the end of the bed and I kind of, I don't know what they gave me when I got to the hospital, but I was kind of knocked out. Mm -hmm. So as I'm coming to, I look up and the first thing I see is one of those Smokey the Bear hats and it was a Florida state trooper. Mm. And uh, next to him was my general physician, my, my doctor that I went to for checkups, not the pain management doctor. Mm -hmm. And so I instantly, I thought I had killed someone in a car accident. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, especially when I saw the Florida State Trooper there. So he told me right then and there, uh, Jason, you have two choices right now. You're you're either going to go to jail or you're going to go to a 28-day in, in-house lockdown detox. And I said, well, I'll never make it in jail, you know, um, so I'll take option B. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't even your choice to go to detox. Oh, no, I was to rehab. Yeah. Uh, jail or rehab. Because at that time in Florida, there's a, a law in place where if you're a danger to yourself or family members, someone who's close to you, family or, or roommate or whatever, uh, can make a phone call. And then by law, they are, they are required to give you two options. Okay. So I guess I could have gone to jail and did whatever sentence and gotten out and did my thing, but I was scared as hell to go to jail. Mm -hmm. Um, and so off I go to this, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest for how long? 28 days, 28 days. And you have to understand too, this was not your ordinary detox rehab center. Mm -hmm. Um, I got put in a, I got first, first thing before I left the hospital, I get put in a straight jacket like Hannibal Lecter. Wow. And then after the straight jacket comes the spit mask. So they put that on me and I'm in a straight jacket and of course can't move. They put me in a wheelchair and then they wheel me down the hospital corridor. They put me on a white van with tinted windows and I go for a little ride about three miles down to the detox. Mm -hmm. When I get into the detox, they take all that stuff off me and I, they tell me to go have a seat. Where they tell me to have a seat, I go sit down. I look to my left. There's an 11-year-old girl there with her arms all slashed up. Wow. She, you know, she was a cutter. Mm. The guy to my right was 14 and he tried hanging himself in the bathroom with his boot laces. So they had to, they pumped him full of Thorazine and something else. I mean, he was out of it. Mm. Um, and so one half of this facility was locked down rubber rooms with surveillance 24 hours a day. And the other half was the detox. That's where I was. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, so anyway, I was there for 28 days and, and was it just for, for detox or were you like, were you in like therapy or group and, and all that stuff? Yeah. So it was, uh, first and foremost, it was a detox center. Uh -huh. So people coming off of alcohol, you know, binges, which my roommate was, mm -hmm. my, I walked into the door. They told me my, your room's the last one on the left. So I go down there and of course now I'm starting to withdraw and come down off mm -hmm. of all the shit that I had been doing. And I open the door to my room and I instantly smell like this stale, warm Budweiser smell. Mm. And my roommate, they, his nickname was Cowboy. He was in the bed, fully dressed, still had his cowboy boots on, his jeans, and still had his cowboy hat on. Mm. And he's going through DTs on the bed, flopping around, shaking like a fish and sweat pouring off of him, moaning and groaning. I mean, he was hurting. And, um, uh, that's, that was, and 
it stayed that way for about the next three days for him. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was about two and a half days, two days. Because they, while I was detoxing, they were giving me Librium too, which helped me tremendously from the, the withdrawals. Mm. Before that, before you went to rehab, did you ever have those withdrawal symptoms? Like, did you, did I did. You ever have because, any, yeah. Yeah, because like an idiot, I didn't, I was not a smart drug user. I didn't plan out my, my using. Mm-hmm. And so a couple times I ran, ran out before my script mm-hmm. could get filled. And it's, it was pure hell. So you knew what was coming. You knew what, oh, yeah. was, what you were getting yourself into. It yeah. happened before. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's miserable. Your entire body, you feel like you want to die. Yeah. So 28 days later, you get out of there. How long did you stay sober after that? I stayed sober after that six months, roughly. So in, in detox, in that rehab center, did you decide that you were going to go sober? Were, were you thinking about that, or are you just thinking about getting the 28 days over with? A little of both. Yeah. Because um, I had reached a point where, you know, I hadn't been arrested. I hadn't crashed a car. I hadn't killed anyone. I hadn't lost a house. I haven't, you know, lost my job. I mean, I... Pretty lucky considering yeah, re- all that stuff that you were doing. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> In retrospect, you know, I look back on all that and... I was what they consider a high bottom drunk or, you know, addict. Mm-hmm. Um, however, some of that stuff was, was to come down later down the pike. Um, so yes, I, re- you know, part of me though, my, my ego, unfortunately was a little too inflated. And so due to my age at the time, I, I kind of took the approach of, well, I'll, you know, I'll get clean and I'll get my life back together. And, and you're what, like mid twenties at that time? Yeah, I was, 24, 25. Damn, still so young to go through all that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had been through all, I mean, by the time I was 25, I had been through a ringer. And uh, so here I am, six months sober. I end up moving back to Boston, back to where my initial using, you know, got kicked off. And I moved back in with my aunt and uncle. I'm, I'm, living in the suburbs in Massachusetts, about 30 minutes outside of Boston in a city called Weston. And now I, if you can picture this and it's kind of hard to believe, but I, at the time this was in the late nineties, this house at the time was $690,000. Back then I had my own room, my own bathroom. I lived rent free in this house I had meals cooked for me. I had my laundry done and I paid zero in rent. Yeah. So where do you, all that money that I made, guess where that went? Back to partying. Back to partying. And, uh, and then that started another progression of. So it was just because you had the availability, because you had the money available, like nothing happened within those six months to say, like, I need to go back to drinking and drugs and all that stuff. It was just because you had, the finances? To yeah. Do the fi- it? So I had the finances. I had a, a place to lay my head at night. I was clean and sober. I still had my job. Um, so I hadn't, I hadn't suffered enough consequences that it was so painful that I, I really wanted to stay on the straight and narrow and fix my life and, you know, work a, you know, work a program mm-hmm. of any kind. Um, 
And in that six months, were you still, were you, like you said, working the program? Were you going to meetings? Were you keeping up with it? I was. I was going, uh, so I was going to mandatory meetings. Oh, they were still mandatory? Yes. Okay. Um, for a while. And then I, you know, once I f- fulfilled my commitment, I actually enjoyed going and I would go. But I mean, it was, truthfully, it was sporadic. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wasn't drinking and I wasn't using any drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but by this point, I was ready to move back to, to Boston. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, I remember getting back to Boston and one of my friends that I knew before I moved to Florida, he called me up. Hey, you know, we're having a, a get together, which meant party. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up that night, I ended up having a couple of Coronas, nothing crazy. Um, and so, and everything's fine. I went home, I go to work the next day. Well, the following weekend comes up. And same thing again. They invite me to go out. Well, this time it's three or four Coronas and some weed. Mm-hmm. And so by now, in my mind, I realize, well, you know, I've already relapsed. Mm-hmm. I might as well do what I really want to do. Mm-hmm. And any time I was drinking or around alcohol, my cell phone would come out. And I'd start making, you know, sending some text messages to people that I knew could get some party favors and and then that's that my drug use escalated even more at that point and how long did that last after the relapse that lasted until 2003 and that's when i got sober and and went to my first aa meeting so from 24 24 25 until what age 2003 2003, uh, what is it, uh, 2019, 16 years ago, so I was 30. So that was a pretty long relapse. Yes. That was a pretty long, I mean, uh, from the relapse, it was pretty much like getting back into it. Yeah. You got back into it for a long time. You were still doing that for a long time. Yeah. So what happened at 30? At 30, I, I had been up for about, two and a half days, three days straight, snorting powder coke off, off the dresser in my bedroom that my aunt and uncle paid for in the rent-free home in the suburbs. And I was snorting coke 20 feet away from their newborn baby at night. And during this whole time, I was still working a full-time job. Still Did they know what was advice. going on? They knew that I was, they knew that I smoked weed and I drank. But uh-huh. I, I don't think, honestly, I'm looking back now and trying to picture it, but I don't, I don't think that they knew the extent to what, how far gone I was and what I was doing. Yeah. I, I literally had, now you have to remember, I, was, I wasn't paying anything in rent. Mm-hmm. I had very few bills. Mm-hmm. I had $23 left in my bank account. I had been up for three days straight, snorting coke, I, I had a king, I was in a king size bed, butt naked with the sheets pulled up under my chin. I was hearing people talking to me under my bed. I was shaken. I had a rag, an old sock next to me down on the floor that was covered in blood and dried cocaine and, um, semen because I had been jerking off. And that's what it did to me. It's, you know, it, it made me super horny when I would get it. But I, at, 
you know, I, there were there were no women. It was me alone in my bedroom with the blinds closed. You didn't care off. about anything. Any I didn't of that. care. It was about, just the drugs. Yeah, the party that you wanted. Yeah, and I wanted to be alone. I didn't want anyone with me, and I just wanted to snort coke. And I would snort so much that I would I would have blood starting to trickle out of one side of my nose. So I would plug that up with some toilet tissue, and I'd keep snorting out of the other side. And when both of them clogged up, I would get a, a pen, take the both ends off of a pen, go in the bathroom and get some cold water and fill up the pen and then tilt my head back and stick the pen in my nostril and let the water dissolve the caked up cocaine on the inside of my nose. And anyway, that process went on for three days. I had a mountain of cocaine on my dresser. And so at the end of these three days, I'm hearing voices, people talking to me under my bed. I'm butt naked. I'm sweating. I hadn't eaten anything in three days. I had $23 left in my checking account. I had to be at work at eight o'clock that morning. So the sun's coming up. I have no more cocaine left. I have $23 in my bank account. I'm terrified. I'm hearing people talk to me under my bed. And I tell people this story today, you know, had I had a loaded gun in the room at that point, I probably would have uh, ended my life because I was that miserable and I didn't know which way to go. I, I couldn't get any higher. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had reached the point where I was having auditory hallucinations, you know, uh, I mean, I was absolutely terrified. The, probably the, the, the most scared that I have ever been in my life. Um, and so I called a rehab center in Worcester, Massachusetts. Mm. They sent a van out to pick me up and took me to that facility. And I stayed there for about 33 days. So all this is going to be, this is like, you get into detail in the book. You yes. go into more details in the book. Yeah, a lot more details. Okay. And that's just one one little peek into how and what I did to get high. Yeah. So sobriety though. So I mean that's that's the main focus of this is to help people to tell the story about how you got why you got to this point and how you got sober. Yes. Right. Yes. So it, it served to serve two purposes to kind of shed light and, and have a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, lighthearted humor in terms of basically getting fucked up. And then, you know, what lengths I went to and the debauchery and the things and, you know, the, the, the risks, more importantly, the risks that I took as an addict mm -hmm. to get what I wanted when I wanted it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, Anyway, with that and the years that I was doing all that, of course, tons and tons of really bad decisions and ending up in places that I, you know, I just really, really bad. Yeah. I'm talking in, in a foreign country, Costa Rica. There's a story in the book about my trip to Costa Rica. And I went to Costa Rica for 10 days all on a credit card. Wow. That's how jacked up I, I was. 10 days of expenses, hotel, food, gambling, cash advances, powder coke, prostitutes, all on a credit card. Wow. And so, 
So that was your second time going to rehab, and that's the one that, that took? You've been sober since then? No. No? So, unfortunately, I, you would think by now, by this point, during my using and stuff, that I, that, that would have been, you know, the, the cap on the bottle. But, unfortunately, it was not. Mm-hmm. Now, I stayed sober for five years after that. Wow. So, first time was six months. Then you, go, you, you put yourself back in rehab. Yes. For 33 days. Yeah. And that one lasted for five years. Yeah. What happened after five years? I ended up going to Costa Rica for a second time by myself, back to the same city that I was in when I went there all on a credit card. Well, how'd you manage to stay sober for five years, though? Uh, well, so let me backtrack a little bit. So my, in 2003, I got introduced to Narcotics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. The very first meeting I went to in uh forgot where it was, maybe Wellesley, Massachusetts, or, or uh, one of those towns, Natick, I forgot which. But anyway, there are people dealing in the bathroom during the meeting Oh my gosh. and selling shit out in the parking lot. And so I knew right away, this is, you know, this is not the meeting for me. Yeah. So I got introduced to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I found more solid, long-term, healthy sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous mm-hmm. instead of Narcotics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And there was a theme in, in NA, and that theme was a much younger, wilder crowd with very, very short terms, you know, lengths of sobriety. Mm-hmm. That's what I found in NA. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- all they talked about was how much they used, mm-hmm. right? How much heroin they shot up or you know, and that, I don't need to, I don't want to hear that shit. I want to hear about how you stay sober yeah, and what you do daily to, to ensure that sobriety is, you know, that your top priority. Mm-hmm. So I got introduced to AA and in 2003. And so that's where I had my five year stretch of sobriety. Going through AA. Yes. The AA meetings. Yeah. And the whole time you're doing AA meetings, the whole five years? AA, yeah. AA only. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of CA meetings sprinkled in cocaine anonymous, but that's a big commitment though, to keep going to those meetings for five years. So yeah, I mean, you wanted to stay sober. Yes. You had I, it in uh, you to stay sober. Right. And I continue to go to meetings, um, to this day. And so what brought on the, oh, so, okay. But you said you, you fell off after five years. Yeah. So I ended up, I had a, another great idea to go back to Costa Rica. Uh-huh. Now, this time I was alone. I was with no one. I had a pocket full of cash. And I decided, eh, you know, I'm on vacation. I'm in this tropical environment. I didn't look into any meetings when I was there. I didn't even take my sponsor's phone number, I don't think, when I, when I went to Costa Rica. Now, did you go take this trip to try to test yourself or yes. did you, did you go, that was a test yourself. It was so a, you didn't go to go party. You went to go see if you can right. enjoy it. Yeah. But there was a small piece of me, truthfully, I think deep down in the, in my soul that I, there was aspects to that first trip that I just, it was too good to pass up. And I you mean, remember I, all the good parts of it. Yes. I mean, and it was this particular hotel in San Jose, Costa Rica, uh, was out of control. Mm. I mean, I, I've been in many a hotel, but this hotel is strictly catered to the single white man. Mm -hmm. 
and every form of facet of gambling and booze and drugs and women and you name it, you don't want for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's literally how my 10 days were the first time I went. So now having five years of sobriety, I'm back in the same place I was before. Mm-hmm. And my cab driver that picks me up at the airport is, uh, he was this really, really young guy and his nickname he proceeds to tell me is turbo. So he drove a cab during the day. What I didn't know was he also ran a drug business, courier business, wow. delivery. Mm. So I hit the jackpot when I got to Costa Rica. I had tons of money and I had a delivery service. So I'm in this hotel owned by a Scandinavian man and a Costa Rican woman. And here's Turbo delivering me, you know, three, four grams of uncut pure cocaine to my hotel room. Mm. And uh, this went on for, you know, three, four, five days. Uh, and, and I literally did not leave my hotel room for at least two days straight. I had food being delivered to my room because mm-hmm. I, I was so jacked up and wired off of Coke. I couldn't, I was afraid to leave. Mm-hmm. And so I would panic. I would get so jacked up on Coke that I would flush a couple of grams down the toilet. And then an hour later, I'm like, shit, I'm out. I, I need more Coke. So I call Turbo, delivers more to my door. I mean, this went on for, you know, I'm snorting stuff. I'm flushing it. I'm buying it. I'm calling them. I'm flushing it. I'm, Why were you flushing it? Were you trying to stop? I was, yeah. Part of me was trying to stop. And, and I, you know, I would get so high that I, I mean, I, I would have to lay down on the bed and take in deep breaths to calm my, because my heart, I could feel my, my heart just pounding in my chest. Wow. I mean, I've honest to God, I thought a couple times I was going to have a heart attack, but I was, I was too like into the, you know, I just wanted to get higher and higher and higher and, and physiologically your body's only going to tolerate so much. You can only process so much Coke. And so I would panic. I, I would think to myself, shit, I, you know, I'm ruining my life. I'm going to have a heart attack. I'd get paranoid and I'd flush it. A couple hours later, I'm coming back down. Now I need more. I mean, and, you know, and I'm having chronic nosebleeds. I'm, I, I mean, I, it was horrible. And this was a whole week? This was uh, five days. Five yeah. days. Yeah. And so at the end of this five days, I realized, shit, I got to do something because I'm going to end up dying. I'm going to either end up in a Costa Rican jail or I'm going to end up dead in my hotel room. Yeah. So I picked up the A hotline that I found and I ended up talking to this guy they called Jersey Bob. And he, of course, was from New Jersey, but he was staying in a city in southern southern tip of Costa Rica called Manuel Antonio, Mm. which is a beautiful oceanfront. Uh, it's like out of a movie. And anyway, I took a three hour bus ride South and I met Jersey Bob and he and I had a little chat poolside at this place called the monkey bar in, uh, Manuel Antonio. And we, we talked and I'm out there crying and I'm coming down from, you know, a four day Coke binge. And, uh, and that's that. And I, you know, that was the end of my drug use. At that point, after that five days, you got back into AA, got back into AA hard and, and 
made a commitment that I, you know, I just, I, I can't do that anymore. I mean, I, I, I will end up dead or in jail mm-hmm. or hurting someone, you know, mm-hmm. killing someone in a car accident or something stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, are you in any type of program now? Do you still follow the program now? I mean, cause that yes, was, that was absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm in a, I go to AA. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't go to as many meetings as I should just because of my, I have a very sporadic work schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I'm actually in the middle of writing another fourth step. Um, so if you follow the, you know, if you're familiar with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, fourth, you know, fourth is taking an inventory, mm-hmm. you know, basically, uh, looking at your resentments and putting them down on paper and listing areas of your life that it affects. And so it's basically a, a cleaning of your soul, if you will. Was it part of the 12 steps, 12, 12 step programs to write this book? Is that what, what no, inspired you so to write the book? writing the book had nothing to do with the 12 steps. So what made you want to write a book about it? Um, the, truthfully, the, the Uber passenger who was doing research on the opioid crisis in the United States, uh, he basically sparked the idea because truthfully for many, many years, since I was in my mid twenties, I've wanted to write a book, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't have the tools. I didn't know where to start. Mm-hmm. I was a hundred percent convinced that you need, you know, big chunk of money up front. And mm-hmm. I didn't know how it all works. I was too lazy to do the research. And I, happened to pick this guy up. I you know, was working part-time for Uber um, to make a little side money and pick this guy up. And he was, you know, floored by one of my stories. And then he spoke to his professors at school and they told him, you know, you, you have, you have got to get his permission to write a book. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the stories that you shared with me, just meeting him the past two months are mind boggling. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got a lot to offer. Mm-hmm. So, that's how all of that started. And what, what's, what's your goal for the book? Like, what do you want to achieve with the completion of this book? So my, excuse me, my first goal, first and foremost, is to help and or prevent the, the young guy or girl that's out there contemplating getting mixed up with drugs you know, experimenting, if you will, or, or going down that path of, of partying and, um, you know, doing the things that I did. Because at that time, when I, when I first started out, I thought, you know, man, I'm young, I'm invincible. I can pretty much do anything and won't suffer any consequences. And, and that same mindset is prevalent today. And a lot of the teenagers and, and, you know, freshmen in high school, they're, at that age where they're, you know, going to house parties and stuff. And, you know, parents are two full-time employees. They're wrapped up in their careers and doing other things. And the kids are out doing their own thing. And, uh, so anyway, that was my, my first, my first goal is to just help and, you know, and, and prevent, if you will, someone going down the same path that I did. Mm. And, it also serves as a, a you know, a, a book of stuff that, cause I wanted the book to hit four emotions. I wanted it to make people cry. I wanted it to make people laugh their ass off, which there's stories in there. You will laugh your ass off mm-hmm. and stories that shock that make you scratch your head thinking, Oh my God, you know why he did this or did that. 
And, and then the other one is just basically red flags and little warning signs if you're a parent that you can look for if you have a child that's, you know, if you think he or she's getting mixed up and stuff that they shouldn't be. And so it's not just for people dealing with it. It's for people that have people in their lives dealing with it. Correct. So it, it kind of serves, it serves as a tool, like a uh, kind of a, a manual, if you will, to uh, if you knew nothing about drugs mm -hmm. and you pick this book up, by the time you're finished reading it, you're going to have a very, very good understanding and background of what, what the drugs are, what they do to you, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the money that you're going to spend to obtain these. Um, and then the, the harm and the, the ways that you will go about wanting to get these particular drugs. Did you kind of have your, your aunt and uncle, did you, did you kind of have them in mind when you were writing this book as well? Like, do you kind yes. of wish that they would have picked up on some signs? Um, they, they did. I mean, they're not stupid. My, you know, my uncle's a Ivy league grad from Dartmouth. He's very, very successful, very mm -hmm. intelligent. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact he knew I was party, but mm -hmm. I don't, like I said, I don't think he knew the How depths. Yeah, yeah. The depths I was going to, to get high and the things that I was doing. Um, but I have since made amends to both of them. Um, my aunt actually is, is being interviewed to, to have a part in the book mm. because I lived with her and my uncle for, you know, 12 years mm -hmm. and I was doing most, most of the time that I lived with them, I was not sober. I was partying my ass off, yeah. um, paying no rent, coming home to home cooked meals, getting my laundry done and mm -hmm. fold it for me. And, and here I am upstairs pissing in their face, snorting Coke off the desk that, you know, the dresser that they own down the hall from their newborn baby, mm -hmm. just doing shit that, you know, looking back on all that is, uh, of course I have huge regrets and, um, you know, not a day's day goes by that I don't think about that in some form or fashion, but I, today I try to live my life, you know, um, just don't be a dick. Yeah. You know what I mean? be a good, be a good guy and, um, you know, help others if I can. And, uh, just, you know, be a, be a, I guess, a you know, a, a figure that people can come to or talk to or get, get my 46 years of life experience. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I work with a bunch of young people and they pick my brain occasionally and ask me my opinion on things. And, um, so anyway, it's a good feeling. And, you know, cause all those years I was all about myself. I didn't give a shit about anyone else. Yeah. I used women, used drugs, um, stole pills from cancer patients. I mean, I did, you know, I did a lot of stuff that I regret. Um, and so this book encompasses all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, a large part of it is really dark and sinister and just some shit that I did that um, I, I don't know how I got away with it and I don't know how I did not die. Did it take you a while to get okay with releasing all this stuff? Like, like you said, there's a lot of things that you did that you regret that you don't feel proud of. Like when you talk about these stories, do you like, man, I don't, I don't want people to know this about me. Um, truthfully, I'm at this point, it doesn't, I don't, 
I don't, I, I'm kind of an open book, if you will. I really don't give a shit. I mean, I spent, <clears throat> I spent a large part of my life overly concerned about other people's opinions of me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, your opinion of me was more important than me having my own identity or, or me standing, you know, for, for something on my own. Yeah. All I cared about was being loved and liked by yeah. everyone that crossed my path. And the way I dealt with that and coped with that was through hard drug use. Because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, I didn't know what it was like to be so, sober and just have a normal conversation with someone. Yeah. I had to put on this facade or be fucked up to, to, you know, to act normal, if you will. No, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you, sobriety, like, is that a tough life? Is that a lonely life? Um, at times, truthfully, it, it uh, can get lonely, you know, but I, I will say this after being in the program for the length of time that I have, it's, it's just like college. You're going to get out of it what you put into it. You know, if you're skipping classes and not showing up and not studying and, you know, not getting adequate rest and taking care of yourself, you're not going to do as well. And I equate that similar to sobriety. You know, if I, if I ever start to put all the things ahead of sobriety that I took for granted, eventually I'm going to slip and fall mm-hmm. and it's, it will bite me in the ass. And so today I have a sponsor. I'm doing step work on myself. I'm, um, helping others where I can. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just want to, like, I just want to live a good life now. I'm married, mm-hmm. right? I got married at 19, divorced at 21, and then all the years up until 46, I was single. Mm-hmm. So all those years, a lot of them are a complete blur. Mm. Um, lots of womanizing and prostitutes and uh, just on and on. And then fast forward to 46, I get married to an unbelievable woman. Mm. Um, and we are in the process of trying to have a child together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my life today is, you know, I am not the same person today as I was back then, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been good. So, there, so to answer your question and sum it up, yes, there, there are days that are better than others. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if I don't, you know, if I'm not hanging out on the south side buying cocaine or trying to do something else, you know, that I know is going to put myself in danger and, and cause me to relapse. It's just not that as long as I don't do that, um, the day can, you know, whatever comes my way, I can deal with. Mm-hmm. It's when I decide to, you know, that I can handle a pill or handle a beer. That's when things go south. Yeah. So, uh, thank you for coming on and sharing your story, man. Uh, You're welcome. Any idea when the book's going to be out, when, uh, you know, when it's going to be available to the public? So there right now there's nine chapters written. Um, and, and the writer lives in Pittsburgh. She's, uh, doing final exams right now. So her time is occupied with studying for exams. She's a grad student. And in the meantime, I'm going through the Google, uh, drive and Google doc, however you say it. And, um, 
making some small edits here and there because she's, you know, messed up spelling on some cities and mm. small details, names of people and mm. all this. And of course in the book that, you know, no original names will be listed. Yeah. Obviously. Um, so to answer your question right now, I don't know all the stories though are available for those who are interested in reading some of them. You know, I can email you some or, or, you know, however that works. I have a Instagram page and a Facebook business page. Um, you can find me on Facebook at SA fitness concierge. Um, and then on Instagram, SA fit concierge, C O N C I E R G E. Other than that, uh, that's it, I guess. Cool, man. Uh, thank you again for coming on. Uh, let me know whenever you get this, uh, the book ready. Um, I'm so interested in reading it, getting more details about uh, your story. Uh, but thank you for sharing, man. You're welcome. All Thanks right. for having me. All right. See ya. Thank you.